Hey, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we'll be in verse one this morning. But we left off last week while you're making your way there in, at the end of chapter 20, obviously, where Jesus just healed two blind men. Uh, one of the men was Bartimaeus, Mark tells us, Mark's gospel tells us, who were blind Bartimaeus. He was one of them. Uh, and now as these men were on the side of the road, they were crying out to the Lord in their blindness, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the Holy Spirit through Matthew is purposeful in recalling this phrase for us. There's a point to it. That as they're being healed and Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem, just as the law and the prophets prophesied that the Messiah would do. They're in Jericho at the end of chapter 20. Jericho, remember the walls come down in Jericho. Well, Jericho obviously was re-inhabited and uh, it's right there kind of on the bottom of the Jordan River in the desert, and you make your way up from Jericho, up the mountain, up to Jerusalem. So it kind of, that's, that's kind of where Jericho is there, uh, by the Jordan River east of Jerusalem, or southeast of Jerusalem, yes. And uh, so that's where that miracle of the healing of the blind men took place there in Jericho. And so Jesus took, takes the disciples aside in Jericho as they're making their way up to Jerusalem there, he says there in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, he told them what was going to happen. Actually, verse 18 he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to uh, him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is speaking in the third person there, obviously. You're going, what's that about? Well, he's, he, there's a title he, he identifies himself as. What is it? The son of man. And so he identifies himself as the son of man, a term to describe a few things about the Lord. One, his humanity is <laughs> the son of man. He's one of us, correct? Uh, he's actually the second son of Adam, right? And uh, he's also, it also describes his humility and that he was... They, they call it in theology, uh, their, the humility and that he left, uh, being God there, so to speak up in all his position and authority, he came down and condescended and became one of us, but it also speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ, um, as the Messiah. And so that term is really loaded in the old Testament. When, when the Jews heard son of man, uh, they would have known from Daniel's like Daniel seven verses 13 and 14, for example, Daniel seven, that that speaks of the son of man as someone who's been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all language should serve him. And so when Jesus is calling himself the son of man, he's identifying with that guy from Daniel. The one who everybody's going to fall down to. The one who's going to rule over everything and serve him. And he will have an everlasting kingdom and so on and so forth. And so Jesus is saying to them first off that he is the son of man as they're making their way up. He says, I'm the son of man. And they're thinking, hey, that's the son of man. He's the son of man. And with him comes a kingdom where everybody's going to bow and, and rule and reign. And by the way, uh, we are going to rule on 12 thrones, he just told us. And we're headed to Jerusalem, and yet he keeps telling us he's going to die and rise again. So there's this 
tension, this dichotomy that's going on. So Jesus has to tell them, listen, the son of man, the one you know of is going to Jerusalem. You're headed with me and I'm about to go die. Does not compute. Similarly, right before Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, they're in Jericho where we left off last week. And these guys are crying out to him, you know, have mercy on a son of David, son of David. Another term for those of you who aren't familiar with the Old Testament there. David was the, the great king of Israel, King David, through whom God made a covenant, a promise in second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 through 16. If you're taking notes, that's the Davidic covenant there. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 through 16, where God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a, a, a father and he shall to be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And so as you're reading that prophecy, that covenant that God gave to David, as prophecy often does, there's a near fulfillment but then there's also a far fulfillment with prophecy near fulfillment is that his son, Solomon, his direct son who would actually commit iniquity and <laughs> need to be disciplined. He fulfilled that in that he did go on and built the temple of Solomon. They call it the temple of Solomon, right? One of the seven wonders of the world. He went on to build a house for the Lord there in Jerusalem, but he says, listen, Hey, it's from his, I'll establish his kingdom. And there's, there's going to be a kingdom that lasts through forever, but it's not through, it's not Solomon's kingdom, his personal kingdom that lasts forever. It's through him that one would come and rule and last forever, a descendant of David. And so the Lord is speaking here in the near term about David's son, Solomon, but in the far term, he's speaking about the Messiah, the one who would come through that lineage and that is why when you read through the whole Old Testament, it leaves out tons of people. And all these stories are like, what about this? Well, it's not important. Why not? Because it's all talking about eventually who the Messiah, who the, the lineage through whom the Messiah would come. And you open up Matthew chapter one and Luke, I think three, you open those up and you have these genealogies that pop out of, out at you and you go, what, what's going on there with these genealogies? Well, it goes back and tells you the whole old Testament story of how Jesus Christ came through the lineage of Abraham from Adam all the way up. And also through uh, the lineage of, I believe Abraham, but through, through the Davidic covenant. And so why is the story of Ruth in the Bible and Boaz? You're like, that's a neat story. Why is that in there? Well, Ruth happens to be the great grandmother of Jesus, right? So there's, there's reasons why these things um, depart in the old Testament. It's all concerning that Jesus Christ. And we've, we've seen that before. Uh, as we've talked about that, but there would be one who would come, one of us, a person who would come from among us, but through a specific line, they would be a descendant of David in verse 16 in second Samuel keeps on going on. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. A covenant is a one-sided deal where God says, I'm going to do this. And then he makes good on the covenant promise. And that's exactly what he did. And so Matthew is recalling Bartimaeus. You have the first one, son of man, but now you have another term, son of David. And this is kicking in with all the Jews that are, as they're crying this out on the side of the road, these guys know their Bible, even though they're blind, they're crying out, son of David, you're that guy. You're the one, you're the Messiah. You are the descendant of David, the one that was promised that would come and rule forever. And they're crying out to him, have mercy on us. And that's what's going on here that... The Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the son of man, the son of David, the promised king was here. And this is important because as we opened up to chapter 21, what is happening is this promised king is now entering the capital of the Israelites. It is coming to fruition. All the Old Testament prophecies are coming to a point where the son of man is doing exactly what they said all those hundreds and thousands of years before. It's happening. And that's what the Holy Spirit's bringing about here through Matthew. And so as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, Bethpage is a small village. It's a small village, basically, to the east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of interesting if, if you're there. Uh, there's the city that kind of sits in a, in a bowl, so to speak. I don't know how to describe it. It's been, been years since I've been there. But then around it, on, on definitely on a few sides, are these hills that kind of come up. And on, on the east side is, is the Mount of Olives. Well, on top of the Mount of Olives is this city called, this little village called Bethpage. And it's just a half day's journey up. It's like a mile away, uh, two miles away when they're talking about these things. So not far, not far from here to the border, you know, that's it. So, um, Bethpage is, is, is right there. And so as they're entering this, and by the way, um, you'll, you'll see that they go to Bethany. Bethany is just a little south of that. That's where Lazarus was resurrected, will be resurrected. And so it's all pretty compact right there. So Jesus tells his two disciples, hey, go into the village that's right ahead of us as, we're, as they're kind of cresting into Jerusalem over the top of that hill there on the Mount of Olives. And go into the village and go untie a donkey with her colt and bring them to me. And so the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. He had it all figured out. And he tells his disciples in verse three to, uh, he says, Hey, if anyone says to anything to you, as you go do this, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. And he'll, he'll bring them back immediately. The other gospels say, you know, Mark 11 tells us that's exactly what happened. As someone, the disciples just walk up and grab these donkeys and start walking away. They're like, Hey, what, what are you, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing? Well, the Lord needs them and we'll bring them right back. They said, okay, <laughs> let, it, let it go. You know, sometimes I, I, I was just made me think, how many of you try to plan your life out really in a detailed oriented way, you know, and you want to know everything that's going on and what's next? Anyone else? <laughs> okay. I just, I figured that's, it happens to some of us, but you know, we don't need to worry about all the details of our life of our lives, right? I mean, just walk with the Lord, trust him, be listening to him and obey him. He's got it figured out. 
He's got it figured out. He's got the obstacles figured out. He's got the, the transportation figured out. He's got it all figured out. You know, when the Lord in, in Matthew six, he's trying to teach his disciples, says, don't worry about your lives, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. All these, the pagans are really wrapped up in all this stuff because that's what their trust is in. That's what their trust is in. But you trust me, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. It does not mean we are going to, you know, look Ferrari. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, I'll take care of you. You're more important than the lilies of the field. You're more important than the birds of the air. I've got you. Trust me. Just listen to me and follow me. Be in step with me. So take, you know, that kind of encouraged me a little bit. This is a little side note. But there's nothing better to be a servant and to watch him work. But why was Jesus in time the donkey? What, what in the world is this about? Verse four. Well, this took place, Matthew tells us, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, verse five, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so this was, who's the prophet? Well, that's Zechariah, 500 years before Christ, Zechariah 9, 9 which reads rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion shout aloud. O daughters of Jerusalem, behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so just as the prophet had said 500 years prior, Jesus, uh, what he was saying is that this is how the Messiah would introduce himself as King to Israel. This is how it would happen. He would come into Jerusalem and that's with O daughters of Zion. Uh, that's Zion is, is, is particularly in Jerusalem there. Mount Zion. He's saying, this is how he's going to present himself. He's going to be riding on a donkey. And Zechariah nine, nine also says that he's coming to you righteous and, and having salvation with him. Righteous meaning right with God, right standing with God. The only one in themselves that is actually right with God alone by themselves. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Adam, not righteous. All of his descendants, unrighteous. But Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of man, righteous. Amazing. Coming into Jerusalem, not only righteous, but he's bringing salvation with him. He's bringing salvation with him, having salvation, not in the sense of that many more people were thinking, hey, save us from these Romans. And we'd like to do that. How many of us want God to save us from a lot of things? And that, how are those prayers working? Sometimes they don't work, right? Yeah, because he's got another plan. He's doing something else. And it's important for us to know that. So it wasn't a political salvation that he was bringing. Boy, you read those you read Zechariah, it sure looks like a political salvation. You read these other verses and it sure does look like he is going to be doing some physical delivering. So is God just, is he messing up? No, that's not the salvation that's happening at this moment. First, it's going to be a spiritual salvation. It's going to be a salvation from what really really conquers all of us, our sin. What really destroys us, the real enemy that we have, the thing that causes everything to go bad, the sin within. 
in the manner in which their king would come. And it also speaks of there in Zechariah 9, 9, humble and riding on a colt. You know, when kings entered a city, how do you think kings enter a city? Usually on a horse, a war horse. They've got their military parade and all that kind of stuff behind them. They've got all their fighting men, you know, show of force, show of strength, all that stuff. Coming on a horse is usually how kings entered a city with not the Lord, not this time, not the first time, not his first coming. He comes on a donkey. He comes humbly in humility. Next time he's coming on a horse, folks. The next return of Jesus Christ, he's coming on a war horse. And the sword is going to cut down his enemies. But this time he comes humble, riding on a colt. A colt is a symbol of peace. Symbol of peace. Pretty interesting. Jesus came to make a way for us to have peace with God. Jesus came the first time so that you and I with all of our sin against him would have peace with him because we were at war with him. He was at war with us. People walk around and go, Oh, I'm not at war with God. You know, you can have your religion. No, he's at war with you. He's at war with sin. As was shared earlier, his right by Andrew, his holiness is so holy, so righteous. No flesh shall glory in his presence. But also, <laughs> and we got to flip the other side. Not only is he righteous, not only is he holy, but he's also a God of love and a God of mercy. Abundant mercy, willing to abundantly pardon. And so how does he, out of the benevolence and deep love that he has for us in our sinfulness, how does he do that? He sends his only son, the only one righteous among us the righteous for the unrighteous to die on our behalf. And he comes riding, not on a war horse. He comes on a donkey humble. And what's, what's the means of peace? How is he going to make, how are we going to make peace with God through his blood? His son is going to die the death that we deserve. God will pour out his wrath on him. The judgment of God will fall on him. He will be the lamb that is slaughtered. Not a covering for sin, but a cleansing from sin. He's the propitiation of our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He came that first time in peace on a donkey. And again, next time, as we will get into in Matthew 24 and all these, you know, coming up here, we get into the end times part of Matthew here. He's going to come. He's going to come on a horse. He's going to come on a war horse. But this time on a colt. Praise God. And by the way, that offer for peace still stands. It still stands right now. Amen. And that's what we long for in church. That's what we pray for. Not that people would change their political views. Not that they would stop bothering us. That they'd be changed from the inside by knowing Jesus Christ, they'd have peace with God and God flushes all that stuff out as he is with us. Amen. Since we're so perfect, <laughs> still working. Verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Amen. 
verse seven, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, put, uh, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Verse eight, most of the, most of the crowds spread their cloaks onto the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. And so these Jews, they knew the prophecies. They, they knew Daniel. They knew Psalm 118. They knew these verses. They're familiar with them. They knew that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on a cult and what that signified, that he was the Messiah, that he was the king. They were crying out. Now you see up to this point, it's important to point out that Jesus did not promote himself as Messiah. Every time they wanted to make him king, he went away and he hid and he, and he kept on saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not my father's plan for me to be revealed right now. Although the people wanted to, for all these reasons, this was the moment. Why? Because that's what was prophesied. That's the way God had planned it out. This was the moment. And so he enters the city on a cult and the crowds are now honoring him as their Messiah and their, their King placing their, their cloaks on the road before him, obviously just a, a symbol of humility before him of his majesty as he comes in on a, on a, on a donkey. Most likely palm branches they're cutting off there. And that's why we have the tradition of Palm Sunday and they're cutting them off and laying them down kind of as a path before him. And they were shouting parts of Psalm 118 as he entered Hosanna to the son of David. It doesn't say Hosanna in Psalm 118. But the word Hosanna is actually in Psalm 118. It's, it's made of two words there. In the, in, two words. It's actually a plea to be saved or delivered. It's, it's derived from two wording, uh, words meaning to beg and to save. We, we're begging you to save us. We're begging you to deliver us. That's, that's what Hosanna means. It's a plea for deliverance. It's not actually a, a, a plea for praise. It's a plea for salvation to be saved. Deliver us. So the Jew is looking at this going, this is our Messiah. He's the one who's going to come and set up this kingdom. And I believe that these people around there, many of them are not going to be with the crowd. Who's going to be turning on them that, that the, the, uh, that the leaders rile up and pay off and all that kind of stuff that many of these people are genuine genuine believers in Christ. They're, 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 this is him. They follow John the Baptist. They've seen things that are going on and they're just saying, this is him. I beg you to save, please deliver us. Please deliver us, please deliver us. And, and they might be crying out of their hearts just for a physical deliverance, but God is going to do something far greater far greater and Jesus Christ is actually going to do what they are crying out for shortly at the end of the week. He's in his last week. This is passion week. This is the beginning of passion week here in scripture. Literally Hosanna means I beg you to save, please deliver us. And this is what the prophecy of Zechariah nine, nine speaks of as well, that when the Messiah comes into Jerusalem, he will bring with him salvation or deliverance. And so the Jews were crying out for this. And this is what he was doing the first time for sin. And so when you read those prophecies, it's subtle, but it's in there 
about the blood of the covenant in these types of things. That's how I will deliver you and all this type. You read Psalm 53 and all these other ones. It's subtle, but it's in there. The Messiah is going to come and first deliver them from their sins. But secondly, when he comes the second time, he's going to deliver his people from the oppressive evil in the world. He's going to clean house. The father was just think about this though. The father was totally purposeful in telling Joseph through the angel to name his son, Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua in English. Yahshua. Yah is God. Shua means saves. God saves. That's what Jesus's name is. The angel's like, you name him this. And that's what he's coming to do. He's walking in there humble, submitted to the will of the father, lowly. It's to the point where he cries out on the cross, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is what was coming. He was coming to fulfill the salvation of his people, our salvation, your salvation. If you receive it all who would believe upon him. And verse 10 says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so you've got two crowds converging. Those who were already in the city and those who were pouring in with Jesus along the way. And now we have to understand that the multitudes are coming from all over Israel right now. This is one of the big three feasts that everybody has. All the males have to go to so their families are all coming to everybody's pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus if he hasn't already, I forgot the timeline, but he is, yeah, he has, he has just raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. He's, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a lot going on here. Those people are freaking out. They are following him and just going, what in the, he just did this. They're saying those things. Uh, and nearby, he did that in Bethany. And so they're making his, as he's making his way down the Mount of Olives into the east gate of the main city, as he makes his way, people are now crying out, Hosanna, save us, save us. And there's palm branches. And as this is happening, now the Pharisees are telling them, keep these people quiet as they're among the crowd. Shut them up. And Jesus turns and says, man, if they don't do it, the stones are going to cry out. And it's also at this time that Jesus stops and weeps over Jerusalem and cries out and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he's, there's a lot going on. He's coming in humbly, but there's a sorrow in him. Because although there are those there that will accept as a nation, they are going to reject their Messiah. And he's weeping over them. I wish you had known all that the prophets had said. It's here. It's now. You, your eyes weren't open. Look at that. It's, you know, that one thing he says there in another gospel. Would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. I'm coming on a donkey. If you'd known this, 
But now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to prophesy that they're going to be surrounded. Jerusalem will be surrounded. And that happened in 70 AD. The Romans would come in and they would end up eating their children and doing, not the Romans, but they would get so hungry inside. They would eat their children. Horrible things were happening to the, to the people because they rejected Christ. So this is the culmination of so much. And as he enters the gate of the city, many people have never seen Jesus before. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have Instagram or Twitter or any of that stuff. Like what in the world's happening is this guy's coming in on a donkey and everybody's crying out Hosanna and throwing their stuff on the ground. Who is this? Who is this? The people who had already been in the city, maybe the Jews proper, the ones who had lived there and those who were in this, in the city, most people were camping outside. Verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of, Gal- Nazareth of Galilee. This is him. Now everyone is now connecting the dots. They understand now. That's him. And what does Jesus do as soon as he enters the city? He gets on stage. He blows them all away. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. First place he goes is into the temple proper. And he's just cleans house as he did in the very beginning of his ministry, three and a half years earlier. Same things going on. He does it again. He cleanses his father's temple. It'd become a place of robbery instead of a place of prayer. And it would, and Jesus wasn't having it. What was happening is that the Sadducees had power over the priesthood. And so you had, um, corruption in leadership and, and because the Romans controlled everything, obviously the currency had Caesar's face on it, right? Who's, you know, whose face is on this currency? Well, you weren't bringing that into the temple because that's pagan money, so to speak. So in order to buy or sell or do anything in the temple grounds for the sacrifices, you had to trade in your Roman money for the Jewish shekel, right? That would seem pretty good. I mean, who wants to use things that are unclean, so to speak, for the things of God? You, you, you want to Well, what became a service started to become a way of making money with the wonderful priests in charge there. And so what they would do is they would have an exchange, a place where you exchange your money, exchange tables. That's what they they were. The people doing the exchange were the money changers. And they would go ahead and take your money, but they would do it at a five times pay back. You know, they would take a huge profit out of these people. Remember some of these people traveling from far away and they're coming to offer sacrifices to the Lord, specific sacrifices that the law of Moses said they had to sacrifice bulls, goats or or lambs and and pigeons or the main three. They had to be unblemished. And because it was such a far long travel for a lot of people. What also happened is there were things being sold in the temple. So it what became, what started as a convenience for people. So they didn't have to bring their, their, their cattle along with them and feed them all the way along the way. They could just go there and then buy one 
and sacrifice it to the Lord. Sounds pretty convenient. Great. Except for the priests would go ahead and take and say, hey, yeah, we'll give that to you. And we're going to make a huge profit off of you. That's what they were doing. And to make things further, they were the ones who inspected the sacrifices to make sure that they were okay. Are they blemished? Are they unblemished? Oh, it just so happens you brought a blemished goat 1,000 miles. Sorry, won't work. You can buy one over here. You can read about this stuff, not only in the New Testament, but also through the works of Josephus. He talks about how evil actually Caiaphas was and his father-in-law. All these people were actually really evil. He talks about all this stuff in a historical fact outside of the Bible. But they kept doing these things. And so you'd have money changers and those who were exchanging animals in the temple. And not only that, it says that Jesus overturned the seats of those who were selling pigeons. What's the significance of pigeons? It's for the poor. The poor couldn't offer a bull or a lamb. They could only offer the smallest of, of, of sacrifices. A pigeon. Do, does anybody remember what Joseph and Mary offered for Jesus at his consecration, his dedication? Pigeons, turtle doves. They were poor. Well, what happened to all that money? Well, they were in Egypt for quite a while. Probably sustained them. You know, that the three wise men or the multiple wise men actually gave them. They're poor. Jesus grew up poor. You know, so it's Passover and you're poor and you come in and you have hardly anything in order to be right with God and to make these sacrifices, the priests, the pastors, the guys who are supposed to be the ministers were turning around and making huge amounts of money off of worship. So the temple there was a deliberate robbery was in the business of deliberate robbery of the poor as the priest sought to separate the people from their money. That's what was going on. And you can read about this again in the works of Josephus. And so all of this caused the Lord Jesus to burn with righteous anger. It was his father's house and his father's house was supposed to be a house of what? Prayer, not profit. Prayer, not profit. And I'm confident that his position on this subject has not changed. Anyone else? As so much of what's we is supposed to be worshiped today in ministry is being used as a means to separate people from their money. And it's usually the poor. It's usually the vulnerable, the ones who are in great desperation who are being taken advantage of these so-called ministers. They love to serve. They love, they love money. That's what they love. And 
not God. And they'll have their day before Jesus to answer for all of this. And so we should all be repulsed by that. And I think we see it and we hate it, right? And there, there should be no place for that in the church and our worship of God. But let me say that there is the potential for that here. There's the potential for that in this ministry, in my heart, in leadership's heart, because we are fallen human beings. Yeah, we, we've proven our trust to you over the years and all those things, right? I, I believe so. I, I, I sense it. But I, I can't praise the Lord enough for the integrity of the men and women that serve in the capacity of overseeing finances, let's just say in this church. Awesome leadership, Marcus and Fred. They are vigilant about our financial integrity and transparency before the Lord and for you as, as people that you know what's going on. There's, they are constantly like that. They want to make sure you can see and know what's going on on those types of things. They're stellar. Carol, you know, I'm not trying to name you out, but I am. It's been such a blessing to, this, uh, to us over the years. You guys don't know much of it, but she's done a lot of our financial oversight there. I'll have an approval from the board to spend money on something that they've approved. And I'll tell Carol, Hey, you know, going to do this. She's like, well, uh, not until I see an email from the board. <laughs> it's like, we, it's me. <laughs> it's not about me. Right. It's integrity. And she shows that it's, it's about the Lord, you know, and it just happens. You know, it's because she's looking out for stuff like that. We've got people are looking out for stuff like that, you know, because churches go down because a pastor, an accountant, an elder gets their paws on the church funds without accountability. And, he, you know, it's just bad or or. There's, there's layers to this. Just please let me go for a second. I just felt like this is something I want to share. So we want to make sure that there's no money changing opportunities go along that are going around by individuals or as a whole. And so no, no upcharging for pigeons. Try to give away as many free classes and free materials as possible. Make sense? You know, the building stuff. Don't want to do a campaign. Don't want to, you know, we don't need to be extravagant and all that kind of stuff. We're still navigating all that, but we're just want to be transparent. On top of that, we have a fit team, financial integrity team. Fred coined that phrase. Woo, Fred. Consists of Carol, Marcus, and where's Pat? Is he, is Patrick's in the nursery right now? Patrick Bew. And they go over the numbers and Patrick audits us regularly and they all make sure there's no funny business going on. Matt's credit cards. You know, what's he doing with that? You know, right. Got Erica looking out for us as well. So the people who count the offering as well, they're checking each other, making sure no weird things are going on. You know, listen, the point is that Jesus is serious about the church being in the for-profit business. It takes money to run things. We invest in things. We do things. That's, that's obviously good. We, we understand that. 
as we give in an act of worship and and love the Lord in such the result of that is we're supporting what he's doing through ministry through the spread of his word spread of his good works message of his kingdom and this is right and it's good and it's pleasing to the Lord and this is what those people came to do they came to worship the Lord it was sweet but even with all those all those things in place, those, those, those things that are ways in which we can make sure there's no funny business going on. You can still as a whole, all agree, all agree to do something stupid because <laughs> you're all deceived and you're all greedy, right? So we got to pray and seek the Lord on things and check one another and just, we want to have biblical leadership and, and biblical accountability as best as possible in all these areas, because ultimately we have to stand before the Lord and he is here. And I don't want him to walk in and just go turning over things and going, Oh, look at you just made money off of this, you know, all that kind of stuff. We just want to be pleasing to him. You guys are worshiping him and we're accountable and we're worshiping. And we just want to honor his name in not only in what we do in the accountability, but the spirit in which we do it. Amen. And so that's why we don't have the heavy handed offering things. We don't, we're not bugging you for money every 10 minutes on stuff. We truly believe that where the Lord guides, he provides. And if there's a need, we'll let you know kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Our offerings to the Lord should be from a free heart and a free will. And it should be a joyous thing to give to him. Not out of compulsory or I'm not going to be blessed unless I do this. Some manipulation from some pastor trying to separate you from your money. If you hear that, just cool your jets. Go pray to the Lord and you give the way that he's calling you to do that. Amen. So just want to lay that out there because this is a serious issue. There's a lot of money being made off of religious things. There's a lot of people coming in trying to separate us from that. Well, the Lord... He's serious about that. And we're not perfect in that, by the way. We want to learn and grow. But instead of a house of prayer, it became a money-making scheme for these guys. It should never have been in leadership. Praying that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the church is about. What, God, what do you want to do through CCF? What do you want to do through us, my small group? Why are you sitting here in this building? Because we are the called out ones and we're here for his glory. Lord, what do you want to do? And let's go do it. If there's people hurting, the money goes towards that. If we need to buy equipment, money's towards that. If there's an opportunity to go evangelize or a trip or whatever it might be for the gospel, say equipping, training, whatever it is, God provides. He takes care of it and we move down those roads. Amen? That's a good thing. So verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to the, into the temple and he healed them. And here's the, I love that. He clears out all the nonsense and the real ministry happens. <laughs> they come on in. Amen. So verse 15, let's just quickly go through this part. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, I love how Matthew enters that in. When they saw the wonderful things he did, he can't just, he can't help but just give the commentary. He says, they're so wonderful. They saw it. And the children cried out the temple. They're crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. This is probably the next day, by the way, verse 15. Kids, you know, you know, kids, 
they hear what the parents are saying and, you know, are doing, there's a bunch of people chanting and what happens is they come in and, and they're repeating the same thing the next day or later on, they're just singing the song or whatever the, the phrase was, Hosanna, the son of David. They're, they're even saying it and the kids. And these, these were probably young boys is the word in the Greek. So these, these, these young guys are just praising the Lord. And, and Jesus said to them, yes, uh, they're indignant. They didn't, they wanted them to be quiet. They're still mad about this. It's just a wrong leadership there. Would you say? And Jesus said to them, yes, you have, you never, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies that you have prepared praise? In other words, like it's amazing. These ones that are little and just pure of heart are just singing the praises of God. And you guys, what's going on? You should be, you should be the ones praising and leading everybody in this, but you're not, you can just see it. I love that. Jesus says, yeah, I am hearing it. (laughs) And by the way, have you ever read the Bible? (laughs) So he gives them some scripture there, right? The point being that God puts songs of praise in their heart. That's Psalm eight, by the way, verse 17 and leaving out the praise. Amen. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So he went and left, I think. I'll have to remember where he went, but he went up on the hill there. Man, life is really messed up. Jesus is so sweet. I love how he comes in and cleans the temple. Not only the temple, the institution of the temple, he comes in and tries to set things straight, but here's what he does. He comes into our hearts and he overturns the money changers in our hearts. He overturns the false worship in our hearts. He overturns the contradiction in our hearts. If we let him, amen. I love that. Let the King enter into the Jerusalem of your heart this week. If I can just make this spiritualized, let him, let him come in and sing praises and let him have his way in the center of our being. You know, we are the temple of the Lord. If we had this, where his spirit dwells, right? And he doesn't want this nonsense going on. And the Holy spirit will convict us of that. The Lord will speak to us of all this junk that's going on. And he wants to cleanse it and get rid of us so that true worship can happen. True fellowship with the Lord, true ministry can flow out of that by the power of his Holy spirit unencumbered. Let him do that. Let him come in. And he is so gracious. Remember he's, he will save you from yourself. Amen. Some of us need to cry out, Lord, save me from myself, please. Right. Again, cleanse me. Anyone, anybody's mouth kind of got out of control lately. Attitudes, too much talk radio, kids driving you crazy with all that's everybody else's fault. You know, Lord, cleanse me. Amen. 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 Lord God, thank you so much that you have sent your son humbly and marvelously into our lives, Lord. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Yes, you are all that Lord and we glorify you for it, but you come to us and you reason with our hearts and you speak to us and you want to come into our mess and cleanse us. And call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that you've never given up. And not only that, you've empowered us now to walk after you. Lord God, be the king, not only of your kingdom around us, Lord, but be the king in our hearts. Be the king of my heart, Lord, of our hearts. 
cause us to repent, cause us to walk in that peace that you've given us, the, the peace that you've given us through your blood, to walk in it and experience it every day. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Lord bless you all. Have a wonderful week, amen? All right, God bless you.